poem you're about to hear is called The Compost Heap. It was written by Jean Fairburn and is narrated by myself, Sue Rodwell-Smith. Crimson-tipped petals, like baby's closed fists, stretch, strain and jostle. But suffocate in darkness, though inexorable growth stirs, despite the depth of layered dahlias, doomed to seed on the compost heap. For failing to draw breath, despite waving their arms like sea anemones in motion, who drowned by the shoreline without reaching any dry land. Or the blessing of bright sunlight and the tangy grittiness and the cut of sea and salty air. A spring dawn sparks a promise and rehydrates the detritus which lies by a timber tool shed in the convenience of a backdrop for maturing blooms of dahlias that stand shoulder to shoulder, wearing their bright green jackets, guarding their dozing offspring deeply dug into their flower beds. Below the towering compost heap a gardener has built up in years, which is now a floral burial site, rising feet above fertile ground. The poem you're about to hear is called Harvest Home was written and is narrated by Felicity Radcliffe. Do enjoy. It's springtime and the farmer sows the seeds that will become our food. He's feeling hopeful, but he knows that nature must be in the mood. I watch him as he prays in vain, to no avail, the ground stays dry, no draughts of soft, refreshing rain emanate from the cloudless sky. The farmer's head bows in defeat, and I ask how we're going to eat. A welcome deluge saves the day and gives the farmer some respite. As he strives hard to keep at bay the bugs, the fungus and the blight, until a devastating gale cleaves a fell path right through his crop. The rape gets battered by the hail. The farmer prays for it to stop. Meanwhile, I try to stay upbeat, but I doubt that we're going to eat. It's summer and we long for sun to chase the winter blues away. But heavy clouds spoil all our fun. The sky stays resolutely grey. The farmer tells me tales of woe. I hearken to his sad refrain. Without the sun, the crops won't grow, and you can't harvest sodden grain. So now I know there'll be no wheat, and I'm convinced that we won't eat. Then all at once it's harvest time, and at long last the sun appears. So I compose a hopeful rhyme, while my poor farmer calms his fears and girds his loins for sleepless nights aboard his combine in the fields, beleaguered by mosquito bites and praying hard for decent yields. Then finally his work's complete. Against all odds, we're going to eat. Let's thank all those who plant the seed and strive hard to produce our food. Without them, we will be in need, so they deserve our gratitude. Let's also thank the King of Kings 
by caring for the world he made. We have dominion o'er all things. This debt must not remain unpaid. Our planet must not overheat, or else we really will not eat. The poem you're about to hear is called The Ham, was written by Isabel Cook and is narrated by me, Sue Wadwell-Smith. Do enjoy. The Ham Cantankerous, insufferable, a positively complicated man who can drip feed the love like sweet honey or jam. He is not a beefcake but more like a tin of spam and his conversation's all about him. Oh, he is such a ham. Amateur dramatics, he likes to strut his stuff but his acting is limited and rather rough. He can leap onto the stage in the middle of an act. His lines he will falter or read, matter of fact. He is soulless with no feeling, flat and dry, but if you think him not an actor, he would spit in your eye. He dreams of stardom, fame and the bright lights. He has set his dreams high. They will soon be in his sights. Disillusion? Is it possible no one can tell? On the visiting director he has cast a spell. Just right for the part of dysfunctional Clem, insufferably pompous, well, that told them. He rolls around now in the glorious shade of fame, and he has become a star, a widely known household name. But to those that really know him, he is still an insufferable pain. The Level Crossing was written and is narrated by Felicity Radcliffe. Do enjoy... The wide Fenland skies pulsed with angry storm clouds blowing in from the west. The endless fields, their crops swaying in mass submission to the strengthening wind, were bisected only by the railway line and the road, which ran parallel for miles, then converged right in front of Derek's modest, rather forlorn house. Standing alone in the vast landscape, with only a few shabby outbuildings and the level crossing for company, it was exactly the sort of house a child would draw. Derek stood at his bedroom window, contemplating the view upon which he had gazed for 50 years. The gates of the level crossing opposite his front door were shut tight like clenched teeth. No cars queued to cross the tracks. Only a lone cyclist waited patiently beside a rusty shopper bike, so different from the flashy road bicycles ridden by the Lycra warriors who passed this way on weekends. Her narrow back and straight dark hair, gathered at the nape of her neck, gave her a fragile look. As Derek watched, she leant her bike against the gates, then seized them, trying to pull them apart. Derek thought her unlikely to succeed. The scene transported Derek back to a summer's day, almost 30 years previously, when another young cyclist, impatient to continue his journey, had forced open the gates so he could cross the apparently deserted railway line. Watching from his kitchen window and with the timetable etched in his memory, Derek knew that the express train was just moments away. As the boy wedged his bike through the gap in the gates and wriggled after it, Derek raced across the road and pulled the boy back from the brink, seconds before the train thundered past having appeared seemingly from nowhere. Shamefaced and tearful, the boy waited in the hallway afterwards while Derek called his parents and arranged for them to pick him up. Only recently, Derek had read in the paper that this same boy, now managing director of a local packaging company, had automated his factory 
and made nearly half his workforce redundant. The article criticised him for retaining his six-figure salary and lavish lifestyle whilst putting people out of work. Derek wondered whether he'd done the right thing in rescuing him. Derek watched the girl's futile struggle with the gates until, without warning, she abandoned her efforts, stood back, then vaulted over with easy grace, leaving her bike behind. The express train was due imminently. Finding a turn of speed he had not thought possible at his age, Derek rushed downstairs and hurled himself across the road, leaving his front door swinging wildly on its hinges. The girl spotted him and immediately dropped to her knees. In a gesture which seemed incredibly poignant to Derek, she carefully removed her wire-framed spectacles and placed them on the ground, then crawled forward and laid her slender frame across the track. Derek barely had time to seize her windcheater and pull her clear before the express train roared past. The backdraft nearly knocked them off their feet as the girl screamed at the top of her lungs, angry at having been rescued. Unrepentant, Derek gently guided the girl back to his house. Over several pots of tea, he listened while she explained, sobbing, that she had been bullied for years at school. Her only friends had abandoned her and she had discovered her boyfriend was only dating her for a dare to amuse the bullies. Her dad left when she was a baby and her mum struggled with drink and drugs. Her name was Lucy and she had no one to turn to. No hope. Derek gently disagreed, explaining how he too had been an outcast whose teenage years were a misery, but had found love in this lonely place and treasured it forever. He recounted how, although his beloved wife was dead, he still felt her presence every day in the birds' bleak cries and the clouds rolling through the immensity of the Fenland sky. Afterwards, Lucy often came for tea with Derek on her battered shopper bike. She liked her new school, organised by her mum, once she found the courage to explain. She enjoyed catering college even more and often tested her baking recipes on Derek. When he had a stroke some years later, Lucy visited him in hospital and taught him how to hold a teacup again. Then, when Derek finally left his lonely house behind and moved into sheltered accommodation, Lucy and her children brought him cakes every week and her husband smuggled in some illicit home brew. Eventually, when it was time for Derek to go, Lucy's smiling face was the last one he saw as he squeezed her hand, smiled back and finally closed his eyes. The tale you're about to hear is called The Visit, was written by Rosemary Emmett and is narrated by me, Sue Rodwell-Smith. Do enjoy. It was a glorious day and Josie Blake was having the day off from work from her busy job at an out-of-town superstore. Although she loved it, really there were times when she got quite depressed when hearing sad stories from some of her elderly customers and also quite young ones. Then of course there were the screaming children who mothers seemed profoundly deaf to their cries. The worst ones were those who treated her like dirt and had never heard the word please or thank you. Her favourite customers were friendly, polite and sometimes with a cheeky sense of humour. 
All in all, just a place to encounter a large cross-section of the public without moving from her seat. This wasn't the career she had planned. She had dreams of being an artist or an actor, but that was before Andrew came on the scene. But today, she was glad of this break. She was heading to her favourite spot, which was to walk along the beach and then sit on the rocks and just watch the gulls swooping and diving above the waves. There was a brilliant sky reflecting on the water clear and blue. The waves were crashing and splashing on the rocks just below her. Josie loved the sea and rugged coastline. She had moved there with Andrew, her husband of two years, and they were both extremely happy. Soon Josie leaned back against the rocks, the warm sun beating down on her face. She closed her eyes and just listened to the gulls and the waves. Suddenly, there was a big splash and she found herself very wet. Oh, sorry about that, said a woman's voice beside her. I didn't mean to startle you. When Josie looked to see where the voice came from, she was startled to see a mermaid-type person with long, flowing blonde hair. Hi, you're Josie Blake, aren't you? Remember me? I'm Maddie Gray. Still in a state of shock, Josie stammered, Uh, yes, you were fatally injured in a car crash five years ago by that drunk driver. Oh, yes, what punishment did he get in the end? Strangely enough, Josie found herself talking quite easily with this creature from the sea. Oh, as usual, a slap on the wrist and a few months in jail, replied Josie. So how come you finished up like you are now looking like a mermaid? Oh, replied Maddie. I was determined I was going to finish up a pile of dust. There were others at the same time as me who felt the same so, with a few words to the right people, we managed to become characters, animal or sea creatures, and as I always loved swimming, I chose to be a mermaid. Josie now remembered Maddie from her student days. She was always a very popular, friendly girl. It was so tragic what happened to her. Josie still could not believe she was sitting discussing the event. Changing the subject, Maddie said, I guess you must be leading quite an exciting life now. I remember you were very keen to be a fashion designer when we last met. I know, said Josie, but it did not work out that way. There were no openings anywhere, so I'm in a local superstore at present. They both laughed. But I quite enjoy it, Josie added. Speaking of which, I'd better get back and buy something for dinner. All of a sudden, there was a gust of wind and the sun disappeared. Josie shivered and felt very strange. Also, there was no sign of Maddie. In a daze, she got to her feet and made her way to the shop and home. When Andrew arrived home and asked if she'd had a good day, he was alarmed at her story. My darling Josie, I think you should see Dr. Peach very soon. You seem to have a worrying problem. Okay, but I think my problem is quite normal. It's possible I'm pregnant and it can have a strange effect on some people sometimes. Andrew breathed a big sigh of relief, smiled and gave her a big hug. The poem you're about to hear is called For Mummy. It was written and is narrated by Denise Dowdell Stent. Do enjoy. Threads of glimmer glass gold glint in the moonlight time. The call of the nightingale is upon us once more, beckoning us with feather-soft, tumbling light 
an effervescent glow shining from within, inviting us to dance, to shed our dulled skins, to shriek, to howl, to laugh, time to cast off our masks, time to reconnect to our primal essence, the bearing of our soul resplendent in all its golden grandeur. We are safe, we are here, in the now, and here, in the ever after, in every breath, honeyed, sweet, and delicate, a butterfly's wing, yet strong, magnificent fortress, a haven, rainbow-kissed, and perfect. Edited by Sue Rodwell. A Woman Scorned, written by Felicity Radcliffe, narrated by Colette Parker, and edited by Sue Rodwell-Smith. My name is Diana. It means many things. Luminous, divine... Fertile, perfect. Once Tom would have used those words to describe me. He chooses different words now, but I don't. I still call him my husband, not my ex. I'll never refer to him that way. Marriage is for life. Tom and I met at college. I was the clever one, whilst he was charming and streetwise which counted for much more. He conquered the square mile and made millions, whilst I quit my publishing career after a fight with my boss. I told her I didn't need the money and went home to get pregnant. I built a gracious home for Tom and gave birth to Jonathan, our beautiful son. We both adored our child and looked forward to adding to our family. Tom loved teaching his boy to play football at weekends on the spacious lawn of our Surrey home. Nevertheless, I knew he dreamed of taking a little girl to ballet classes and I resolved to make his dream come true. One decade, two miscarriages and three rounds of IVF later, my husband called time. Apparently, I was no longer the beautiful blue stocking he had idolised in college. His city colleagues were all trading their wives in for younger models who thought they were masters of the universe. But I never imagined Tom would leave his son. I was wrong. She came along and turned his head. Suddenly, he was content to be a weekend dad. She is called Inessa. Her name means chaste, which is hardly appropriate. I would laugh. Had she not destroyed my life? A woman is every wife's nightmare. Cultish legs, full lips, tiny waist and lustrous skin. Her body fat percentage is fashionably low and her tawny mermaid tresses artfully dishevelled. 
when I followed my husband along Bishopsgate one evening and saw him greet her with a tender kiss, I knew my parents had given me the correct name. Diana, the goddess of hunting. I fixed my eyes on my quarry and vowed never to quit. Tom wasted no time in building a new life for himself and Inessa, right on my doorstep. He blew his bonus on a large house just a few miles away from our family home in Surrey, where I still live. This allowed him to remain part of our social circle, and the number of invitations on my notice board declined sharply. People I had considered good friends apparently preferred to spend time with traitorous Tom and his vile floozy than with me, a woman scorned. So I cut them out of my life. I don't miss them. My husband's adultery moulded me into a different creature. But it was Jonathan who broke my heart. You see, my son liked Inessa. He knew how much I hurt, yet he returned from his access visits with cheery tales of the fun they had together. When I looked at his phone and found their WhatsApp group and the photographs of them laughing, hugging and playing, my resolve deepened. I would not lose my son to that woman. She had to go. I followed Inessa everywhere. It wasn't difficult. She didn't work and spent her work days floating blithely between the gym and various restaurants and cafes. Gradually, a pattern emerged. Her gym sessions were regular as clockwork and every Thursday afternoon she would drive up to Box Hill for a hike. One sunny afternoon, I watched from the undergrowth as she sat on a bench, swigged from her water bottle and took in the stunning views over the Surrey countryside. I realised then that I had my quarry in my sights. The online car mechanics course was described as self-paced and my chosen speed was lightning fast. I blitzed through it in two weeks, then bought the necessary tools. When I checked the weather forecast for the following Thursday, I saw that heavy rain was predicted. Perfect. I didn't follow Inessa that day. There was no need. By then, I knew exactly when she would pull into the car park. As I engaged a low gear and began the steep, twisting climb to the top of Box Hill... I knew that she should already have left her vehicle and embarked on her hike. I hoped the rain hadn't put her off, but I needn't have worried. Inessa didn't keep a figure like hers by reneging on her exercise commitments. I sighed with relief as I saw her car, rain-drenched and unoccupied. There were few other cars in the car park and no sign of their owners. I donned my surgical gloves and wriggled under Inessa's car. I had committed to memory the diagram showing where the brake pipes were located. For a moment I hesitated. 
then smiled as I cut them. As I emerged, I heard voices. Walkers were approaching. I had planned to put the tools in my boot to be disposed of later, but there was no time. Instead, I ran uphill towards the vantage point from which I planned to observe Vanessa's precipitous descent. My hiding place was further away than I thought. I was panting by the time I arrived. As I concealed myself in the trees, my phone pinged. Hi, Mummy. Don't pick me up from chess club today. Inessa asked me to go to Box Hill Cafe, so I've skipped chess. She doesn't fancy hiking because it's wet and we like their cake. Don't be cross. Daddy will bring me home. See you later. Love, Jono. My sobs tore at my burning lungs as I flung myself downhill. I slipped on the sodden grass and heard a sharp crack as I fell. But a surge of adrenaline extinguished the pain and propelled me upright and onward, limping heavily. Below, the car park came into view. Two figures in hooded waterproofs climbed into Nessa's car and shut the doors, oblivious to my screams. The driver accelerated away towards the downhill switchbacks. The hunt was over. Baby on the Way was written and is narrated by Alice Golding. I'm dreaming I'm in a boat. I'm in a boat which seems to be sinking. It's full of water and my legs are all wet. But the water is warm. I don't like this feeling and I don't think I'm asleep. I open my eyes and wonder why my nightie is ringing wet. I reach for the light and it flickers on. My eyes take a moment to adjust to the brightness and then I look down and see it's spilt everywhere. Just everywhere. Like in the Dan Busters film, I have burst the Mona Dam. My waters run off the bed in rivulets, pink fluids soaking through the sheets and dripping on my brand new cream-coloured carpet. I gaze in horror at the mess. I knew kids were messy, snotty noses, chocolate fingers and worse. It hasn't even arrived yet and it's made a mess. I elbow my husband. He turns and blearily opens his eyes. Everything okay? I burst into tears. God, I'm all wet. He throws back the duvet and surveys the devastation. I think your waters have broken. Talk about stating the obvious. I find myself smiling despite the shock of waking up and drowning in a lake of amniotic fluid. Duh. I can't help myself. He gets out of bed and takes charge. My tummy cramps up and I let out a whimper. For the first time ever, I'm so thankful that I don't have to make any decisions. I have at least been organised. My hospital bag is packed. The itinerary and checklist is stuck on the fridge and my birth plan is in the folder at the ready. I had not anticipated having to clean up the waters of the Mona Dam. I climb out of bed, my feet squelching in the deep pile of my ruined carpet. I hope the rug doctor will get it clean. I'm tempted to fetch the vax from the garage when another pain grips me. I double over, clutching my side. That was unpleasant. 
I start to strip the bed. Bother, I'm gripped by another pain, and this one lasts longer. Colin walks in. What on earth do you think you're doing, he shouts. I think it's perfectly obvious, so I don't reply. I'm still trying to straighten up after that last wrenching pain. I find myself panting like they tell you to do in all those prenatal classes I insisted Colin and I attend. He hurries over and starts rubbing my back. That's nice. I whimper again as another contraction hits. I think you're in labour. Colin sounds shocked. Duh. Another pain greets me and I let out an expletive. My goofy husband grins. I don't think he's ever heard me swear. Don't you worry, everything's going to be fine. You really think the rug doctor will get the pink out of the carpet? I look up at him, hopefully. He laughs and nods. I'll sort it, but first we have to take a little trip to the hospital. He grabs my pre-packed bag. Wait, I can't go like this. I look down in dismay at my sodden nighty. I need a bath. You're kidding me. Colin does not look impressed. We need to get you to the hospital. I'll find you a clean nighty. But I'm all sticky, I whine, and another pain grips, and I start to pant. I'll have a shower. Promise I'll be quick. Colin looks as if he's about to explode. We have not got time. You need to get to the hospital. I would have laughed, except another pain hit me, and it lasted longer. When I caught my breath, I disagreed. Rubbish. First babies take hours. Check with the midwife. Time the contractions. You'll see. I'm going for that shower. The hot water rained down on me and I leant against the wall, letting it soothe the ache in my back. I was nearly on my knees as the next contraction hit. Maybe Colin was right. Perhaps we ought to make tracks to the hospital. It was a bit of a drive. Colin knocked, then waltzed in. I was on my hands and knees now, moaning as another pain squeezed and I started to pant. He had the phone in his hand. Colin walked out of the bathroom, leaving me panting on my hands and knees. Ooh, this was not good. I wanted pain relief, epidural, gas and air, knocking out with a blunt object, anything that would stop these pains. Colin was still talking on the phone. Ten minutes? I'll leave the door open. Come straight in. His head appeared round the bathroom door. How are you doing? I couldn't answer. I was too busy panting. Can I do anything? I was ready to scream. Have the baby for me. That would be a good start. I was never doing this again. The hot water wasn't so hot anymore. I wanted to turn it off, but I couldn't stand up. The water isn't very warm. Shall I turn it off for you? You look a bit cold. I nodded through chattering teeth. Colin reached over and switched off the water, then popped out and came back with some lovely warm towels. He wrapped them around me and in walked the midwife. Finally, I was tucked up in a nice clean bed, in a nice dry nighty, and holding a small warm bundle, lying fast asleep in my arms. Colin put his arms around my shoulders and kissed me. Look, we have a beautiful baby boy. A New Year's Resolution, and was written and is narrated by Joan Tucker. If you are Star Trek fans, you will really enjoy this story. On New Year's Eve, the service lift at Scribbly Museum stopped on the second floor and Tish, the evening cleaner, stepped out with her trolley of cleaning sprays and her bucket and mop. She didn't have to work that night, but staying at home meant she would be lonely on the last night of the year. 35-year-old Tish, divorced a year, lived alone in a one-bedroom flat and held down two jobs to make ends meet. She loved nothing more than working at the museum, which far outweighed her job at the local calf. 
Scribbly Museum had for the last six months played host to a travelling exhibition called Sci-Fi Through the Ages. It had been well attended and loved by all the visitors, but today it had come to the end of its run. All the displays were to be packed up and transported to another museum in two days' time. Tish, who loved anything to do with sci-fi, was saddened to think that after tonight she would never see those exhibits again. They had become like old friends to her and she had lovingly swept her yellow duster over them all during her, their time with her. She had kept all of them in pristine condition and it was the best well-kept display in the whole of Scribbly Museum. It was atmospheric at that time at night. All the artefacts with their special effects lighting glowed against the dark windows of the museum. She breathed on a head of a gold Dalek and polished it to a sheen. Rose Tyler had once touched this Dalek in Doctor Who and it had come to life. Tish placed her hand in the same place, always hoping the same thing would happen to her, but of course it never did. Tish moved on from one display to another, carefully cleaning but deliberately lingering to say a fond final goodbye to them all. She lifted the chain of a display that was closed off to the general public and stepped proudly onto the bridge of the Starship Enterprise. She ran her yellow duster lightly over the panels until at last she came to the captain's chair. She had done this a few times when the museum curator wasn't around and now Tish sat in the command chair where Captain James T. Kirk had once sat. Release docking clamps, she whispered. A head-worn quarter impulse, Mr. Sulu. Warp speed at your discretion. Aye, Captain, came the reply. Although you might want to release the external inertial dampness first. Tish shot out of her chair as if she had been stung, but it was only Deck, the night caretaker at the museum. He didn't mind Tish trying out the Star Trek exhibit. She was careful and good at her job. She loved all the sci-fi stuff, although he couldn't see anything in it himself, but it made Tish happy. Declan went and sat at the helm and Tish joined him in the navigator's chair opposite. Evening, Tish, she said, and he offered her a cup of coffee from his flask. How are you doing tonight? Hiya, Deck. I'm okay. How about you? Fine, he replied, a little bit sad that this is all going as it's been an amazing exhibit. Yeah, me too. But Declan knew she wasn't okay and he worried about her. This time of year was hard for people who lived on their own like Tish and tonight she looked particularly unhappy. The coffee will perk you up, he assured her. You always make the best coffee, Deck. I've never had anything quite like it. Where did you say you got it from? Declan Frost didn't like his name being shortened, but somehow when Tish said Deck, he didn't seem to mind. Oh, off a little planet near the rings of Katara, he told her, and it made Tish smile. It was better than saying from around the corner at the mini-market. He liked Tish, and always looked forward to this time of the evening when there were just the two of them in the museum, having a break and chatting about the exhibits and old TV programmes over a cup of coffee. Why are you here, Tish? You should be out with your friends on New Year's Eve, enjoying yourself. If only she could tell Deck how lonely she was. Every day she felt herself fading away, not wanting to live in the real world anymore, but in the realms of fantasy, out there in space, flying a starship, away from everything. 
Tears stung the corners of her eyes and she tried not to let Dex see how awful she felt. Why would I want all that fun when I could have all of this? I know it'll be gone soon and I just wanted to spend the last night here with them. I can't have them turning up at the next museum looking second rate, now can I? Thanks for the coffee deck. Well, I have to finish my jobs, Tish. What do you say we meet back here in an hour for more coffee? I think there might be even some more mince pies left in the cupboard. She thought about it. Declan carried on with the rest of his jobs while Tish continued her dusting. Eventually, she reached the last exhibit called Star Trails. It was her favourite. The show had only lasted one season before it had been cancelled. There were 26 episodes in all and Tish knew every one of them off by heart. There had been talk of a film, then a series comeback and... And... <laughs> Carry on. Say and again. And Tish had even dabbled in writing a few stories herself. The series had a huge fan following. It was so real and so lifelike that it made her believe in the possibility of life throughout the galaxy. When Tish had long... Doesn't matter. Sorry. When Tish had when long... When Tish had lingered too long over the, the handsome actors in Star Trails, she moved on to the spaceship that was also part of the display. It had arrived at the same time as the rest of the exhibition, along with Deck, but she couldn't recall it being in the series, and it puzzled her. Perhaps Deck knew which episode it had been in. She got out a yellow duster and ran it along the fine, sleek sides. Whoever had made this ship had made it really well. She was impressed. Decker brought the coffee and mince pies back with him. He was trying to work out how to tell Tish that this was his last night at the museum. He was leaving tonight. He saw Tish touch the hull of the outer place ship and ran towards her. Deck quickly pushed her out of the way before a blast hit him in the chest and threw him some 20 feet away against a wall. Tish cried out and Deck moaned. She rushed over to him. He pressed his shoulder and she heard him say, Deactivate auto defences. Tish, go to the ship and get the med kit. It's a red box with a white cross on it. Please bring it to me and hurry. Surely it was a trick. Deck knew she loved all of this stuff and thought he was pretending just to cheer her up. But the blood looked real enough. This isn't funny, Deck. You can stop all the pretense. The joke's over. No joke, Tish. Please, do as I say. There's not much time. So he wasn't pretending. I'll call for an ambulance. No, Tish. Please, just the med kit. She hurried to the ship. Where's the damn door? Oh, there it is. As she approached, the door opened to let her in. She didn't take in her surroundings, being much more concerned with finding the med kit. She found it and dashed back to deck. Declan opened it and pulled out what looked like a hypospray and injected himself. This will stop the bleeding and is also a painkiller, he told her, and reached for another object and it glowed faintly as he passed it over the burn. Tish saw the wound heal in front of her eyes and within seconds there was no visible sign of Deck having been hurt. He sat up and faced her with a small smile on his lips. Tish, I had planned on telling you before I left, but you should know that I am from the early part of the 24th century. I'm a starship captain and my shuttle was caught in a time vortex. It sent me here six months ago and I've been hiding as the night caretaker in the museum while trying to make repairs. 
Tish looked unconvinced until he pulled up a sleeve to reveal the true colour of his skin. This is what I really look like, though. It's not all over me. Unsure of her reaction, Deck braced himself for the impact. He was expecting her to scream at least, but before she could say anything, the clock on the museum tower started to chime. It would be seconds before the start of the new year. It's time I made a New Year's resolution, Tish told him. What's a New Year's resolution? Don't you know anything? Dex still looked puzzled. It's all about making a fresh start. I understand. Is that what you want, Tish? A fresh start? Yes, I don't know whether to believe you or not, but I was going to ask you out for a drink tonight, Dex. Now I'm not even sure you do drink. Next you'll be telling me that you're over 400 years old. I drink, he told her, and I'm only 348. It's my birthday next week, and I would have gone out with you for a drink. But I'm afraid I have to leave. My ship's repaired, and I have to make my own way back to my own time and galaxy. Tish shrugged her shoulders. It would never have worked out anyway. I don't date old men. Dex suddenly took her in his arms and kissed her tenderly. When he let her go, she asked him if he had any extra arms or legs tucked away anywhere about his body. He laughed, a deep throaty laugh that she really liked. What you see is what you get, he told her, spots and all. He still held her in his arms and Tish realised she loved him. I wrote a letter to the curator of the museum explaining that I had to leave, Dex said. I suggested that you were capable enough to take my place, but I don't think I can do that now. You know too much about me, so I'll have to take you with me. Even if Dex was a bus driver, Tish would have still loved him. And the last chime of the museum clock struck midnight, Tish started to sob. He dabbed her eyes with a clean yellow duster and told her not to cry. Is it anything like Star Trails? she asked him. Better, he told Tish, taking her by the hand and leading her towards the ship. Coming? Tish was walking along a beautiful beach with water lapping at her toes. She found it hard to believe she was on a different planet with three moons in the sky instead of one. Ready to leave, Mrs. Frost? Deck asked, putting his arm around Tish. We have new orders and the resolution is eager to be off. Is that what you've, you're calling the new ship? Tish asked. Well, I couldn't very well call a fresh start, could I? I thought it might make a nice wedding present for you. Just wait till you see her. Tish couldn't have been more happier. She was a long way from home, but she wasn't alone anymore. She had friends and a new and exciting life to lead, but best of all, she had Deck to share it with. Have you remembered the coffee? As if I would forget. Deck touched a small badge on his shoulder. Captain Frost and Mrs. Frost to the resolution, two to beam up. Excellent. Thank you very much, Jo. And a happy new year to all our listeners and to you as well, Jo. Thank you. Happy new year to you too.